Welcome to the sermon podcast for First Christian Church of Warsaw, Indiana. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Please visit us at FCCWarsaw.com to learn more about our church or to make plans to be with us on a Sunday morning. Again, that's FCCWarsaw.com. For centuries, Christians have been known as men and women of prayer, people who lift up their cares and concerns to the Father in heaven. Why is that? Why do we pray? We pray because it aligns the mind of the Christian with the will of Christ. We pray because Jesus commanded us to pray at all times, in all places. We pray because the God who knows all and sees all, hears all. We pray because it is the blessed link between human weakness and divine omnipotence. We pray, not because it is some religious rule, but because the Lord is God. We pray because it is the most simple and practical way to say, I am not God. We pray, not because it is a burden to us, but because it liberates us from all other burdens. We pray because it is exactly what the devil does not want us to do. We pray, because God can do more in five seconds than we can do in five years. We pray because it is the one thing that supersedes everything else on our to-do list today. We pray because we are too busy not to pray. We pray because somewhere, sometime, someone prayed for us. And we pray because the greatest tragedy of the Christian life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. Prayer is powerful. That's why we pray. Good morning. I am obviously not Pastor Matthew. Uh, He is ill today, so he asked me to step in for him. But we're going to continue in our series on New Year's Essentials. And today's focus is on prayer. And before we get into our text this morning, I want to share a little something about myself with you. Um, I am the youngest of three children, and I've got a sister who's seven years older than I am and a brother that's ten years older than I am. And so for several years, I fulfilled the role of a little baby brother, okay? And uh, when I was a child, um, we didn't have cell phones, and we had one phone in, in the kitchen, and privacy was based on the length of the cord and if you could shut yourself in a room, okay? And so as the annoying little brother, when my sister was on the phone, I I wanted to know who she was talking to. So many times I would ask, who are you talking to? And she would not answer. She would not interrupt her conversation. She would wave me off, usually with a fist or some other motion. And, And so I would leave her alone. But then I discovered over time, and either I was told this or I discovered it, that if you listen to the conversation long enough, you could figure out who the person is talking to. And that truth applies to our conversations with God in prayer. And communication in prayer defines and determines your relationship with God. If I were to listen to each of us pray... I could determine some things about your fellowship with God, what you understand about God, and your identity as a Christian person. 
And this morning, we're taking a look at one of the most famous pieces of Scripture on prayer. And it's from the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have your Bibles with you, open to Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to read uh, verses 5 through 13. And in these passages, Jesus deals specifically with prayer. And he tears apart what's happening in his culture at the time, but then also he points to the nature of true prayer. So I'm reading from Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the example that we're given here in Scripture about the nature of prayer. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would ignite the truth of your word in our hearts and our minds, that you would help us as believers to develop a discipline of daily prayer, not something that's formal and heartless and mindless, but instead something that's clear and something that's intimate and something that has a structure to it, but at the same time has freedom and joy in it. And I pray that you would just draw us closer to you in this process. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, prayer is one of the most important components of our spiritual journey. And the idea of being a Christian and not engaging in regular, consistent prayer doesn't make any sense. And if you've ever watched the Olympics, if, if you've ever seen uh, people who are in competitive swimming, one thing that swimmers need to learn is how to breathe appropriately as they swim. Because that's just as vitally important as the strokes that they take and the rest of their body movements. The breath determines the functioning. And prayer is like spiritual res respiration to the believer. To not pray and to be a believer in Jesus Christ, it's like you're not taking a breath at all. It's, not, it's like you're not connecting. It's, it's like you're missing your respiration as part of your spiritual life day by day by day. Scripture talks about the vitality of prayer and how important it is to have prayer as a continuous part of our life. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says this, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. 
With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Prayer is to be a daily discipline. It's to be part of life and lifestyle. It was never meant to be restricted to a worship arena. It should be part of our identity from day to day and literally, in a sense, moment to moment. So what's the purpose of prayer? What you understand as the purpose of prayer will ultimately determine how you pray and what you pray. And many people are confused about the purpose of prayer. There's teaching in our world today and teaching in our culture today that if you pray the right things in the right way with the right words, you'll get exactly what you want, as if God's some vending machine in the sky. And years ago, and even today, books were published on the nature of saying the right prayers in the right way so you could get what you want from God. That's not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is not to be a consumer and God to be a distributor of our wants. That's not the purpose of prayer. Prayer is also not a psychological coping skill. In, in some New Age concepts, prayer is simply an act of psychological meditation so you can feel better when you're under stress. That's also not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is communion with God, to glorify God, and ultimately to see God's will fulfilled in the life of the believer. Let me say that one more time. The purpose of, pl of prayer is to commune with God in order to glorify God and to see his will fulfilled in our lives, the life of the believer. And Jesus modeled this. Jesus was one who prayed. And even in the midst of his earthly ministry, when he's performing miracles and he's preaching and he's teaching, and he's, he's instructing the disciples, he managed to separate himself from the rest of society, the rest of the world, and go off into lonely places and pray. And the disciples saw this, and it caught on to them. He modeled communication with God. Now, if we're to understand the nature and purpose of prayer, we need to also understand what prayer is not, what it was never meant to be. And if you think about the religious world of Jesus, Jesus is not talking to atheists. He's not talking to people who are unreligious. He's talking to a Jewish community who had prayer as part of their identity. We're not saying good prayer, but we're saying prayer. And Jesus was talking to people who prayed about prayer, which almost sounds a little strange. It's almost like talking to Pastor Matthew about lawn care. Okay, And if you know anything about him and his lawn, I'll, I'll leave that to you. But here's, here's the point. Jesus is talking to a religious community about something they thought they already knew about. But they didn't understand true prayer. And so he references some of the aspects of their prayer life. And if you were a Jew in the first century, you would have had more than 18 memorized daily prayers for morning, noon, and night, and for multiple aspects of your daily living. From how you washed your hands, to how you ate your food, to uh, different aspects of putting on clothes, you would have specific prayers for each activity, all memorized. 
And one of the prayers that was memorized by all the Jews, of course, was the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would echo this over and over and over again, multiple times a day. And it was repetitive, and it lost any flavor, any meaning. And so Jesus addresses this. And when he's calling the religious community out on their prayer lives, he addresses two dynamics in that. He addresses the hypocrite's prayer, and he addresses the pagan's prayer. And like I said before, how you pray and what you pray ultimately shows your relationship with God. And so first of all, he calls out the hypocrite. He says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. The hypocrite, the word hypocrite means actor or performer. And the people that hated Jesus the most were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day, because they were practicing false religion. Everything that they did spiritually, everything that they did religiously was all external. It was all for the applause of people because they loved to hear that. They loved to receive that. They loved to stand on street corners and offer great big prayers with flowery words so that people would come and say, oh, that's fantastic. You're such a great prayer. I remember when uh, I, was, I was in ministry years ago, I went to a conference, and part of this conference was having a CPA come and talk to the pastors about taxes and how to, how to manage taxes. And uh, one of the pastors stood up and asked a question. And as he was asking this, at first I thought he was kidding, but he was dead serious. He referred to a trip that he had taken earlier that year. He went on a trip to, uh, I believe it was either Ireland or Scotland, and they had this, this stay at a castle and this large feast. And somebody found out that he was a pastor, and they said, oh, could you pray for the meal? And he said, can I write off that trip, that entire trip, because I gave this wonderful prayer at this great meal? That's, that's a picture of hypocrisy. When you're using communication with God to glorify and honor yourself, there's something really sick about that. And Jesus even tells about a parable, he gives a parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go to the temple to engage in prayer. And the, the Pharisee, if you read this, this parable, the Pharisee is literally praying to himself. He's giving his spiritual resume about how awesome he is. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Then he addresses the pagan's prayer. And the purpose of the pagan's prayer is to manipulate a deity that's, that's not really familiar to you. He says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And the word babbling means to stutter or vain repetition. And there are many people, uh, both in that time period and this time period, that believe prayer is some sort of manipulation tactic, and if you keep poking at God, he'll give you what you want. And there are those who see prayer as some ethereal, emotional dynamic, and, and not to get into certain dynamics this morning, but they, they use nonsensical words in their prayer. I don't, I don't believe Scripture supports that. And Jesus is saying when you're, when you're referencing God, when you're connecting to God, you're addressing a deity. You're addressing a God who is not only holy and sovereign, but a God who knows you and he loves you. 
He knows every word that's going to come out of your mouth before it even shows up. And so we come to him with reverence. And in the book of Ecclesiastes says, God is in heaven, you are on earth. Let your words be few. We're not here to manipulate God through prayer. That's a pagan understanding. And neither one of these types of prayer, either the, hip, the hypocrite's prayer or the pagan's prayer, shows evidence of an intimate relationship with God. Prayer is lived out, it's best lived out when you have intimacy with the living God. So what is God honoring prayer? Jesus makes that clear. He says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God is spirit. He is not like us. He is not, a, he is not human. He is, he is divine. He is holy. He is not someone that we need to work to impress. He knows that we are like dust. And Jesus gives this picture of, of not being grandiose in your prayer, but being intimate in your prayer. Breaking yourself off from all the other things of life so that you can intimately connect with God. Connect with His Spirit and connect with His power. We also need to recognize that God is sovereign. He is not like us. He is above all things. And we just sang that. In verse 8, Jesus said, do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. God is above and beyond all things. When you pray, you're not informing him about something that he doesn't know. And it's staggering to me, and I've been guilty of this myself, as in, in prayer where we feel like we need to inform God, where he's on some sort of vacation and we're, we're giving him a voicemail to check. That's not prayer. He knows you. He knows your life circumstances. He knows everything about you. He knows what will happen in the future. And he's sovereign over all of it. He's ultimately in control. And so when we pray, we're connecting with a God who knows everything. And that should be mind-blowing to us. So coming back to this pattern that Jesus gives for prayer, he says in verse 9, this is how you should pray. Jesus doesn't do this anywhere else in Scripture. This is where Jesus gives a specific format for prayer. And I want to make something absolutely clear. Jesus says, this is how you should pray, not what you should pray. Now, I grew up in a church tradition, in a denomination where we had what's called the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday. And some of you might be familiar with that. And I didn't even become a Christian until I was 16, but I knew the Lord's Prayer. And it didn't mean anything to me. I would just regurgitate these words Every single Sunday, and there was a cadence to it, okay? But it didn't matter. It didn't mean anything. It was pointless. And to the Jews of that day, they had their cadence prayers that really didn't make an impact, that didn't mean anything. And what Jesus is doing here, he's not giving his disciples another prayer to, to pray. He's giving them a format, a structure, a skeleton for prayer. And if you really dissect this, if you really look at the words... It's incredible because it's all about relationship. Every portion of the Lord's Prayer, it should be called the Disciples' Prayer because it's for them, but every portion of it defines the relationship between human and God, between the prayer and the one receiving the prayers. So we're going to dissect that this morning. 
We begin with verse 9, our Father in heaven. This is a picture of the parent-child relationship. It's a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of God as Abba, Father. Not a Father that, that we're distant from, but a Father that we're connected to. And I know there are many people who have had very broken relationships with their earthly fathers, and so it's very hard for them to even accept God as Father. I've, I've met them. I've worked with them. But here's the beautiful truth of it. God's a perfect parent. And every failing that our earthly fathers have made, God is not subject to that. And he can bring healing in spite of that. And we can know him as father. We can recognize ourselves as children of the father when we have intimacy with Christ. Now, here's the other truth as well. If you are not in Christ, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't call God father. But on the day that you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, you changed fathers, in a sense. Because before we are in Christ, Satan is our father. And after we are in Christ, we become children of God. So that's why we start the Lord's Prayer with our Father. Second, hallowed be your name. This is a picture of a deity and a worshiper. And to say, hallowed be your name, that means to make your name holy. It's the, co the concept of attributing holiness to God. That's one of the commandments, that, that his name would be upheld and respected and not taken in vain or misused, not just verbally, but behaviorally. When we recognize the name of God as being exalted and holy, that, that puts us in a position of worship and honor. And it magnifies him as authority. God is not your buddy. God is not your pal. Yes, there's the concept of knowing Jesus Christ and accepting him as friend, intimate friend. But when we really think about the deity of the living God, there's power in that. I knew a man once who said, well, when I get to heaven someday... Uh, Jesus is going to have a Harley Davidson motorcycle right for me and he's going to hop on his Harley and we're just going to ride in the sunset together. And He doesn't have a clue. That's not, not only biblical, it's also a little psychotic, to be honest. God is holy. He is on his throne. And when we come into his presence, when we breathe our last breath, we're going to be so awestruck by, by his power and his authority we probably won't even be able to speak. And so when we engage in prayer, we recognize his name as holy and above all things. It goes on to say, your kingdom come. That's a picture of a relationship between that which is sovereign and that which is subject. It's a picture of God's total authority over all things. I don't care what, what political side you might lie on. I want to make something absolutely clear. God wasn't voted into office, all right? And he's not in any danger of being voted out. He is sovereign over every political leader that's ever existed and ever will exist. He is authority above all things. And when we go into prayer and when we say, your kingdom come, we're establishing him as king and authority and us as his, as his worshipers, as ones who are subject to him. 
It also says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a picture of a master-servant relationship in that we pray, first of all, that God's will becomes our will. And second, that his will shall prevail over all the earth. Here's the sad part. And I'm, I'm so guilty of this. How many times do we simply go to God in prayer and it's all about us? This is what I want, Lord. This is what I want. It's not it. When we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, one of the purposes of prayer is aligning our will with his because his will is perfect. And some of the greatest things that God has ever done in my life is to not allow my will to be done because I'm a mess. But when his will is accomplished in my life, that's the sweet spot. And that's what this, this section of the prayer is all about. And then it says, give us today our daily bread. It's a picture of a beneficiary and a benefactor. And literally the translation is, give us today's bread. Not tomorrow's, not next week's, today. It's a picture of daily sustaining by God. If you ever studied the Old Testament, and those, who are, those of you who are in the Bible app daily program will get, get through this, but there's sections of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus where God sustains his people every single day with supernatural bread called manna. And so God put them to the test as his people. And, and this wasn't just to feed them, it was to create a level of dependency. So that every day, the very food that they put in their mouths was dependent upon God's action. And here's, here's one of the sad parts. We live in the richest culture that's ever existed. I, to be honest, not to be rude, I have a hard time honestly thinking about the last time I was really hungry. I, I should probably practice that from time to time. But the idea of, of being sustained by the hand of God, especially when we live in a, in a position of wealth, is hard for us to grasp and hard for us to understand. This prayer aligns us with that understanding. Imagine if every time we, we have something, whether, whether it's food or whether it's some sort of blessing or whether it's even technology, where we stop and say, God, it's only because of you that I even have this. So many times when we earn a paycheck, we think, I earned that. How many times do we stop and say, no, that's from God's provision. He's the one who gave me the skills so that I could have a career in order to earn this. And it's just a mindset that we need to be in a position of humility where we live in dependence on God. And that's what this prayer does. It aligns us with that. In verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have been forgiven by our debtors. Or excuse me, as we have forgiven our debtors. This is a picture of a savior-sinner relationship. It recognizes our brokenness and our desire to live out God's grace in our relationships with others. If you go to God in prayer and you have unresolved bitterness and unforgiveness, that will hinder your ability to communicate with God. That's why Jesus says this. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you 
your sins. There are prayers that God doesn't listen to. When there's ongoing, unrepentant sin in the heart of the person praying to God, God does not listen to those prayers. The Old Testament sustains that. And part of prayer is confession of our sins and saying that we're a wreck, we're a mess, and and we've, we've got this brokenness, we've got broken relationships, we've wounded others, we've hurt them, and we need to be forgiven for that. And when we receive God's grace, when we receive God's forgiveness, how inappropriate is it to receive that grace and forgiveness and not pass it on? That's the command there. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who have brought debt upon us. And it refers to sin as debt. It's a mindset. It's also a heart action. In the last portion, the Lord's Prayer says this, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a picture of the guide and the pilgrim relationship. God is leading us through trials by his holiness, by his power, by his authority. And if you don't believe that there's active evil in our world today, that means that you are very, very naive, because there is. We live in a world, and if we claim the name of Jesus Christ in this world, that means we are at war. We are at war with the forces of darkness that are trying to undermine the kingdom of God and remove people systematically from from following Jesus Christ faithfully. We're in a war zone. And part of our prayer life should be engaging in that understanding and asking for God's intervention in the darkness in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. How often do we struggle with temptation and we never even think to pray? How often do we struggle with something where we know we're we're heading down a path we shouldn't go, but we should stop and say, God, please lead me away from this. Help me to take a stand so I don't fall into this. How often do we think that we can just do this by the force of our own will? That's, That's crazy. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need God's intervention in order for us as mortal, broken human beings to engage the darkness that surrounds us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is one who is called Satan, who is out to destroy us. And part of prayer is engaging in this conflict. And if you want to take a look at this more in depth, take a look at Ephesians chapter 6. It's a picture of the spiritual armor that we receive from God by his power, by his grace, by his authority, so that we can wage war on a spiritual level. That's prayer. And all of these aspects of the Lord's Prayer point back to this intimate relationship. And so the challenge this morning is, how are we going to live out this pattern in our prayer lives? Yes, it's a new year. Yes, we all have uh, these New Year's resolutions that might last or might not last. But I'm challenging you this morning to let prayer be different. Not based on a calendar, but based on your identity and your fellowship with the living God. I challenge you to take a personal inventory of your prayer life. What are the words? If, If somebody were listening to you pray, what would they know about your relationship with God and your understanding of God's identity? What would it say about you? Because 
Today is a day when we can realign ourselves. When we can start living out a daily prayer practice that not only reflects a better understanding of God's identity, but also draws us more intimately to him. Let me end with this passage from James. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is any one of you happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. What part will prayer play in your life for 2023? And not just for this next year, but for the remainder of your life. So I challenge you this morning, if you don't know what to pray, if, if you feel like your words don't reflect a healthy relationship, go back to phase one. Get in the word. Examine what God's uh, passages about prayer say about this relationship. And you can even pray pieces of scripture. And I guarantee that by the end of this year, your relationship with him will have changed for the better. Let's, let's stand and pray together. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from First Christian Church of Warsaw, Indiana. We invite you to join us for worship on an upcoming Sunday morning. Check out our website at fccwarsaw.com for more details and information. Again, that's fccwarsaw.com.